Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. Don't forget that the ASHT annual meeting is rapidly approaching, and we hope that you will join us in Washington, D.C., October 13th or 16th. The program that's been set looks amazing, and I know that you will leave with great information that you can immediately implement into your practice. There is a hybrid option as well if you aren't able to travel to D.C., and you can find the final program as well as registration on the ASHT website. We hope to see you in D.C. Now, let's talk about our next episode. Stephanie and I are joined by James Northcutt, an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist to discuss brachial plexus birth injuries. James is the coordinator of the brachial plexus program at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, so this is a topic he is well-versed in. We discuss several aspects of this diagnosis from evaluation at birth or soon after, how to address these children's needs as they grow up, and some of the interventions these kids might receive to address their impairments. He also gives us some great therapy treatment ideas and how to help these children from infancy to adulthood. Welcome to Hands in Motion, James. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. We are here with James Northcutt, and we're going to be discussing some great topics this evening on pediatric brachial plexus. And how are you doing tonight, James? Doing very well. Been a busy day, but looking forward to tonight. So give us a little bit of your background. Where are you currently at? Where are you working at? What are you doing? For the past five years, almost to the date, I've served as the brachial plexus clinic coordinator and hand therapist at Texas Children's Hospital and the medical center here in Houston. Before that, I kind of cut my teeth in pediatric hand at Shriners Hospital in Houston. And then I took the, the coordinator position five years ago. So James, our topic this evening is brachial plexus injuries in the pediatric population. So why don't you just give our listeners kind of an intro, your maybe elevator pitch about these injuries and what you do, your role at Texas Children's? Sure. I think to start, there's a group that was made a few years ago called Plexus Nexus. It's kind of a a meeting of the nerds, if you will. We've got, you have the surgeons, you have the therapists, as well as the researchers and scientists. And they kind of, one of the big ticket items was to define how, what are we going to call this? Because if you look in the literature, there's about 12 different acronyms for the injury. And what they came up with was we want to call it brachial plexus birth injuries. They felt like that was the most of like well-defined term. And hopefully moving forward in research, it'll be a little bit easier to find those articles as we start to, to call it the same thing. So that's, I think, just to start with something to be considered. Elevator pitch. It's a unique especially the obstetric injuries are unique in that you've got multiple processes at play. And that's a big difference between adult brachial plexus injury and pediatric in that you have the nerve injury itself and the recovery. You have a glenohumeral joint that is forming. It's not formed, but it's, it's forming at the time of the nerve injury. 
And you also have the cortical and the developmental side of things where babies don't know how to move purposefully. They're learning that as well. And some of them are learning that while their arm is injured or while there's weakness and how those interplay of those three things is extremely important. And I think that the take home message for everything would be early assessment and early intervention. Whereas before, like the old paradigm of care was more of a wait and see, even, you know, 15 years ago, kind of waiting to see how the nerves were recovering and then surgery or no surgery. Whereas now we're like, no, let's get them in the door as soon as possible. And there's so much we can do to help mitigate some of the secondary problems that happen with these injuries. So understanding the immediate need of these kids, at what point are you seeing these kids in your facility and starting assessment, treatment, education? I think the the unique jump, like coming to Texas Children's in that they have a, you know, emergency room as well as a, a neonatal intensive care unit. When I'm on site, I'll get pulled into the NICU, you know, for a two, three, four day old, if there's a concern for injury, brachial plexus injury. As far as clinic goes, if it's an outpatient and not like a NICU or an inpatient type consult, our goal is to hopefully see a child, you know, by the time they're one month old. That's our goal. Anything beyond one month, we kind of consider a later referral, but that's our goal. And it might be five day old, two week old. We want to see them, you know, sooner than later. So what is your focus of care, even in the NICU? Like, what are you working on? I'm, that might sound like a real basic question coming from a non-ped therapist. <laughs> like, what is your focus in the NICU versus in clinic by, you know, when you really start to see them at one month? What's that transition like? What's really important in what you, I think, what you're afforded in seeing a child that, that is that small is you get a really good look at the the level of injury. Because when you see a kid at two and three months, they might have already gone through some recovery and you don't exactly know what the initial injury included. So at you know in an early referral, you get a really good look at what the what levels are injured. So you can kind of look towards the future of what the challenges might be. In the NICU, I'll say this, like I have you can only do so much. I think I went into the job and going into the NICU and I'm going to set the world on fire. I'm going to change all these things. We're going to do all these splints and all this stuff. And I got in there and it just wasn't possible. There was so much more to look at, you know, so basic positioning, like advantageous positioning for the shoulder, trying not to let them stay in that internal rotation. Even if you can get them to a neutral position with some towel rolls or whatever, in my mind, you're, you're kind of investing in their future, especially from a shoulder standpoint. You know, so positioning is very important. I have done some soft splinting, like especially for the wrist. You know, if you've got the wrist is in, in max flexion and there's no extension, I'll go ahead and put like a neoprene, something soft, just to, to correct that position. And I would say that over my career, I've been more aggressive in positioning and trying to prevent things than before, just because those contractors are really hard to get to get past once they're there. When you say that NICU or even early referral, getting the parents on board, I'm really big on giving hope where you can. 
you think about a new family and they've got all these hopes and dreams, you know, for this baby. And then there's an injury and it's not as it was supposed to be. But there's some hope that you can give. Like, let's say it's an upper trunk injury and their hand is fine. The parents can't see that yet, but that is a huge advantage, you know, comparatively. So being able to call attention to that and giving them hope, those are big pieces. So caregiver education, preparing them for the future. You know, this is what you can expect. I think it's nice for the parents to see a face that they're going to see in the clinic. And they say, oh, yeah, we talked to this person. And so there's some continuity there, which is also really, really key. So when they do come to clinic, how, and it's my understanding, you'll have a multidisciplinary clinic. So how is that set up? And what is involved in evaluating these? We'll talk first, the babies, when you're seeing them in clinic. Every brachial plexus team in different hospitals is set up a little bit differently, depending on who's the lead. And, you know, sometimes you have neurosurgeons or plastic surgeons or orthopedic surgeons, just kind of depends. In our clinic, we have plastics who handle most of the primary nerve things. We have an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Bell, who is kind of the shoulder. He is handling the shoulder rebalancing and the lat transfers and the anterior releases and those things. We have physical medicine rehab who are there as well supporting. And then we have our OTs. That's kind of our core group. Coming to clinic for like a new baby, I'll go in as a coordinator and introduce them to the clinic and kind of give them what to expect for the day. If there's any immediate concerns, I can kind of get those and make sure the team knows that they, we need to speak to certain things. OT will go in first. And, you know, our assessment for babies is, is mainly comprised of our, the AMS scores, the active movement score or scale that we'll perform. We do, you know, a typical active and passive range, you know, facilitating as much as you can in a, in a small baby, trying to see what they can do spontaneously. You know, checking their reflexes can be helpful. Looking for other things that are going on, you know, if they have some preferences on their head turning, are they spending most of their time to the right or left after the injury, which does happen, kind of screening out some torticollis stuff to see if there's concerns. You know, as they, even one month, two months, three months, we're checking their, their shoulder integrity. I think a really important piece that I will probably talk in more depth about is the propensity for the humeral head to want to move posteriorly when you have an imbalance at the shoulder or when the, the external rotators and abductors aren't working and you've got an over, you know, you've got an unopposed internal rotators or unopposed adductors, that humeral head will start to, it can start to migrate posteriorly. Trying to screen for that is a big piece as well. We do look at development. I would say kind of in a general, in general way, we don't do like a Peabody or anything in clinic. We just do more of a screening depending on the, on the child's age, but that's kind of the, the core pieces of, of the OT screen. And then we'll, we'll kind of talk with the PM&R and our plastics physicians, and then we'll go in as a team after we've kind of discussed what we saw. So when you're looking at these patients, like, can you kind of predict like what their expected recovery will be, or is it kind of just taking it as it comes? How do you set the goals for that patient? There have been some, like the, the Naracus grading system, for instance, 
it's a four category grading system where category one is the upper trunk, C5, C6. Category two is the, the five, six, seven. The third one is, is a global injury without a Horner's. And then the fourth category being, you know, global injury with a Horner sign. There are some percentages that are attached to those categories for the percentage of kids that will get better. In the literature, it ranges somewhere between 65% and 90% as far as kids that spontaneously improve. I think based on my experience, I would say it's probably closer to 65. And you really have to define what, what recovery is. Because just because the nerves recover to have a functional arm doesn't mean that they don't have shoulder problems or shoulder dislocation or other issues. You know, so that's kind of a tricky question in that we don't really have a way of like fully looking into the future on what kids will look like. But we do know that the faster that they get elbow flexion, usually the better they do. And that cut off around two months. If you get recovery by two months, they say you're probably going to do really well. And if it's beyond that, it kind of worsens as time goes on for how long it takes for those to return. So how do you give hope to the parents, you know, when you have these little children and babies and like you had discussed earlier, you know, they're looking for the best for their child. And how do you help them deal with what they're seeing and to get them involved as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Running a clinic, there's a, a balance that has to be struck between like realistic hope, like you really have to, there's a balance there. I rely on my surgeons to provide the matter of factness of there was an injury. We don't know exactly what's going to come of it, or if this baby's going to need surgery right away. There's going to be some time where we have to see you over the next you know, course of a few months to make a good decision. And then telling them, hey, you know, based on if a global injury comes in and all five nerve roots are involved, we have that conversation that this is a really bad injury and that the rate of recovery and the need for surgery is high and that you cannot expect a 100 percent arm in certain cases. I mean, that's kind of a an upfront conversation that our, our surgeons are really good at having and giving hope. I use the example of like an upper trunk injury versus like a global injury. I can tell a parent that if your kid has a, a five, six injury and they have a good wrist and they have good grasp, that those children almost all the time have a really good cortical map of their arm because they can explore their environment and they have a little bit more typical developmental course than a kid with a global injury. And cortical mapping in the early, you know, the early months and years looks a lot different for a kid with global injury versus upper trunk. So you can speak to that. And, you know, if a child falls in a worse category, like a, a global injury, you know, research kind of has shown us that even children with really bad injuries go on to live full lives. And you can see that kind of from a functional standpoint. And they go on to do a lot for themselves. It looks different. They need adaptive maneuvers, adaptive equipment sometimes, but in general, they go on to live full lives. I think bringing some of those things out early to give some perspective and some hope is, is really important. And as a 
as a therapist and even someone in a clinic, that's not always our focus. It's hard to, you know, remember to do that sometimes. It's, you got to be intentional about it, but I think it's worthwhile. So being a fellow pediatric therapist, I know that we don't just see kids for a short stint of their lifetime. We see them across that, that span. And I'm, I know that that is true with this population too. So what does it look like? So we've talked a little bit about your assessments for babies, but we know these kids become toddlers and go to school and become teenagers. What does that look like in your institution for just evaluating these kids and following these kids over, over several years? Yeah. From an evaluative standpoint, one thing that you can use as kids get older, usually we say like three years old and up, if they can play Simon Says, normally you have a good chance at doing a formal Malay. And the Malay has been around for a long time and is one of the gold standards of, of assessing brachial plexus injuries. So we definitely add that as children get a little bit older. And as they get, you know, there's the preparing for school looks different you know, some of the rigors of, of a classroom and trying to think through ADLs beyond the basics and preparing them for school. There's also the psychology component for brachial plexus where they have a different arm. And normally, you know, or not normally, but sometimes there can be some, some asymmetry to that and it can be noticeable. Preparing parents to have some things to say, like uh, giving a child a narrative is really important. I'm not a psychologist and don't pretend to be. And we definitely refer out to psychology when some of those questions come up, if, if a parent would like to discuss it with them. But something I learned from Gloria Gagola was that you need to give the child something to say. When someone confronts them and asks them, they need to have something off the cuff that's meaningful for them, that kind of explains you know, why they are where they are. And it allows them to be okay with it. You know, and normally, you know, in a school setting, if a kid gets an uh, example back or if they get a response back, they kind of say, oh, okay, and they move on. But it's when things are getting hung up or when a parent makes a much of it with the child and, and brings a lot of attention to it and the deficits, that can be more challenging. So you definitely have to start prepping them for those conversations. And, you know, the teenage years, you see kids less. I mean, they get older and you're following them every year unless there's something coming up. It's usually what happens. We start to kind of, you know, spread out our follow-ups. But myofascial pain, you know, due to overuse or some of the maladaptive compensatory strategies that kids use to move their arm in space can be problematic. You know, when you start to use your postural muscles as prime movers, like your upper trap or even, you know, some of your, your periscapular musculature, those things have to need to be addressed and, and should be coming earlier than that. But it's usually teenage years where that really starts to kind of weigh and be something that's involved. The other side of things is you get athletics, you get more targeted goals like weightlifting things that take a bimanual approach specifically in the sports world, musical instruments, you know, some of the difficulties when it comes to certain instruments and working through those issues, definitely as kids get older, usually comes for sure. I'm trying to think of anything, I'm leaving anything out. Um, I think that we probably, as a clinic and a profession, maybe 
we live in a world of referral because there's, there's someone who does a lot of that and we refer out a lot. There's a lot of specialists. So we do less of the mental health side, but I, I, I think there's probably more room to kind of move into that space to address some of those things could be helpful. So what kind of advice do you have? So I work in outpatient. I can get kind of any range of ages. I have, was just talking with Kara earlier that there's a referral for a brachial plexus injury. They're nine. So, you know, I don't really have a good history on, on what kind of services they've received before, but just for the regular OT or regular hand therapist or PT, like where would you start or what suggestions would you give to our listeners as far as where to begin? Something I didn't mention earlier, like in our assessment, that's a huge, huge part is the, the relationship between the scapula and the humerus. And a scapulohumeral rhythm is going to be different in a child with a brachial plexus injury, even a mild one that took a little bit of time to recover. It's not going to be perfectly symmetric. It just won't be. And there will be more contribution from the scapula than there will be the humerus almost always. If I had a nine-year-old that I hadn't seen, I would definitely want to know surgeries. Obviously, like, what, what does your history look like? Did you need nerve surgery as a baby? Have you had any secondary procedures like, you know, a latissimus transfer or any other tendon transfers to help augment your motion? Were there any derotational osteotomies or anything else that was happening, you know, to position your arm better? Distal transfers, if it was a more of a global injury that included the wrist and hand, you know, just trying to get a good history. The fact of the matter for a nine-year-old is they're still growing and contractures tend to worsen when they go through growth spurts. And a nine-year-old hasn't, you know, hit puberty yet possibly or hit a big growth spurt. So even though a lot of things might be kind of where they're going to be as far as their movement patterns are going to be pretty ingrained at nine. They're going to have a way of moving their, their scapula. They're going to have a way of moving their arm to be successful. You really have to take some time to look at, you know, I, I take their shirt off and want to see from the back and watch, you know, how their arm is moving in relationship to their scapula. What are their movement patterns when they're reaching overhead? Where's the risk at? I'm looking for myofascial risk talking to them about discomfort or pain that they may have, checking for like how supple their, their tissue is, you know, if there are myofascial restrictions that could become problematic, doing a basic active and passive range assessment, doing the malay, like I mentioned earlier, kind of getting a baseline for, you know, how, how they're moving, checking for ADLs, obviously, see if they're getting everything done like they'd like to. They're nine, they probably are. So that might not be a focus. Looking for, for future risk of contracture progression, trying to mitigate some of that risk, I think would be kind of a, a starting point for sure. I'm not going to say you can't stretch contractures that are nine years old, but it's difficult, you know, and, you know, especially at the, like at the elbow, we get a lot of elbow flexion contractures. If a nine-year-old walks into my clinic, we're probably not talking about trying to fix it with a, with a orthosis. Like, I'm probably not going to make something to go on that elbow. We're probably going to start talking about serial casting. You know, if it's 
30 degrees or more. Emily Ho wrote a beautiful article about like decision-making for elbow flexion contractures and brachial plexus. Definitely check that out. It's very well done, as is all of her stuff. But I, I'm probably going to think about serial casting if there is an elbow contracture versus trying to do some conservative like splinting. I think those, yeah, that that's less of like, they're probably not going to be a surgical candidate in certain ways. They may be, you know, so you want to get them in, ask them if they come, if you're in a hand clinic and you're seeing a lot of adults and they come into your clinic, I would say, check in whether have they met their team in a while? Like when's the last time have they seen their brachial plexus team or their clinic? And if they haven't, to try to encourage them to do so. James, could you speak to, and I know you've talked a little bit or mentioned a few of the surgical options or other treatments for these patients. What are some of those interventions that these children might undergo, whether it's the nerve repair, even is, is that being performed? How often does that happen? And then, or are most of these procedures addressing those limitations that come about later? in life. Yeah. So I'll go from, let's go from like birth till, you know, to older child starting from kind of from the beginning, your first decision points are for primary nerve surgery and distinguish, like trying to figure out if they would benefit from surgery. Nerve surgery for a young baby looks, it's kind of in three categories. You have like a neurolysis where you're, you're cleaning up the nerves. You've got grafting, which is normally like consider like a cable graft or or grafting, like once you've cut out an aroma and approximating those nerves, you've got to build a bridge there. So you have your cable grafting that happens. And probably the more popular option that's like come into practice more in the last 10 years has been the nerve transfers. There's a myriad of nerve transfers that have been proposed for brachial plexus injuries, including like you've got your intraplexal transfers, that are taking place like within the brachial plexus. The most popular and probably the, the most successful is the Oberlin's transfer, where they'll take fascicles from the ulnar nerve or the median nerve, and they'll swing them up and tie them into the musculocutaneous nerve or directly to the biceps to regain elbow flexion. That's definitely tried and true. It's done a lot. There's some transfers going from radial nerve to axillary nerve to kind of restore some shoulder function. There's extraplexal transfers like spinal accessory nerve to the suprascapular nerve, trying to get some rotator cuff function back. Those are commonly used for these babies. And there's definitely some more. The intercostals is, is common. If you have a really bad injury and you're trying to get some innervation from outside the plexus, the intercostals are used frequently as well, you know, if they're able to. At what age are they performing these procedures, like the nerve, the nerve surgeries? In the world of brachial plexus, it's, it's very variable. And I've been involved in some heated discussions about <laughs> what should be done and when and, and how much. I would say a, a good general rule, like most of these surgeries are happening from three months old to about nine months. Twelve months would be considered kind of towards the end of that window. And for some of the nerve transfers, you could do it even later than that, like closer to like 15 months because of the nature of the transfers being closer to the target muscle and you don't have so much nerve regeneration time so they can do those later. 
which is nice, but I would say most of them are happening between three and nine months. And for global injuries, like when there's a Horner's or the really severe injuries, they need to be taken early, as early as possible. Starting, usually they don't take kids under three months in general, but there are surgeons, again, depending on who you ask, uh, some very prominent surgeons who will take these kiddos at one month and two month old to go ahead and repair. So that is a very hot topic in our world, uh, for sure. So nerve surgery, once you, you know, that's kind of the early, I would say, let's just say in the first year of life, that's a big decision. Some of the secondary procedures start to happen closer to year and a half, two years. I think the, the literature kind of points towards wanting to do some of the, like the lat transfers or getting the shoulder reduced early before they're about four years of age. And that's in order for that to get a good glenohumeral joint. If you're having trouble, like if the humeral head's moving out on you, the faster you can get that reduced and the longer you keep it reduced, the more likely that glenoid's going to form well. So the secondary procedures are normally some anterior releasing of, you know, you can have the pec or the subscapularis. There are some transfers and things to try to get more external rotation or to reduce the joint. And then, you know, there's different ways of, of giving some more power for the arm, like a, like a latissimus dorsi transfer is the most popular for that. More of a salvage procedure that kind of happens when those are not options, like if the shoulder is not reduced and they're older, they can do a derotational osteotomy at the humerus. And it, you don't gain range, you just change the range. So, you know, their arms really, really internally rotated and you're gonna rotate them out to put their hand you know, more in front of them. That's a, a common procedure that happens later, you know, to help out with function. There are definitely more, but that's kind of a, <laughs> like a, a summary of the common, common ones. So in your practice, most these kids are having procedures more in early years, whether it's the nerve as a baby, some of these procedures, whether they're soft tissue transfers, in younger ages, as opposed to when they become more adolescents, teenagers, then it becomes about like correcting maladaption or more, I guess, external work. Yeah. Not that it can't be done or that there's not things to do in certain circumstances, but, you know, as kids get older, they get very, you know, they're good at doing what they do with what they have. And when you start changing those positions, it can be a little harder for a child to kind of accommodate, you know, to a, a, a big change in hand position, for instance, you know, like a, a rotation. It's just harder for them to, to adapt. So I think in our practice, for sure, you know, those, a lot of the surgeries are taking place in the younger years, you know, with the goals of restoring function with the nerves or keeping the shoulder reduced are two of the main, the main goals for the, for the kids. So I know you gave Stephanie some good tips on assessing this patient she might get a referral for in the upcoming weeks. Do you have any other tips? I would say a lot of our listeners are practicing more in general population, not specific in peds, but if these kids, whether they're school age kids, teenagers, or even into adulthood, are there any tips or advice that you would give other hand therapists that might be treating these kids or into adulthood 
on how to approaches or, or treatment ideas or just overall general thoughts? Yeah. Okay. Tips and tricks. I love the tips and tricks. Anytime anybody has anything to say, we treat so many younger kids. I'm going to try to, to change gears. We do see the, the older kids and tying your shoes, you know, is kind of one of those things where it's always going to be delayed, especially if you have, you know, some issues, you know, and but kids like to wear regular shoes. They don't want to, you know, wear weird shoes or anything different, you know. I have become a fan of YouTube. I don't like, I mean, there's, I think YouTube has its limits. I'll say that. But there's also some things where I could say, this is how you tie your shoe with one hand, or this is how you, you tie your shoe with a hand that only works like this. But having a child like look at some videos and see what resonates and allowing them to kind of make some decisions within what they're able to, to be successful gives them some empowerment. And that's a good thing. That's always a good thing, especially for your preteens and even younger kids than that, but giving them some buy-in. And I, I've had really had to push into the social media and the YouTube stuff, but it's helpful. I mean, it can be helpful. I have lots of tips and tricks for some of the baby stuff, but I have seen even an older, you have this nine-year-old that may or may not have had good care. You don't know. I have seen some pretty good results with really focusing on eccentric control, especially for the shoulder. So instead of working concentrically against gravity, I'll start getting them in as far as they can go and trying to hold it and kind of control it and doing that in variable degrees. Like you might not, they might not be able to do it just concentrically, especially not without cheating. That's really tough. Like if you want like a, a good tip, if you're trying to decrease, you know, some upper trap contribution or some scapular contribution, get them an abduction, maybe with a, with a washcloth on the wall where they're standing or sitting and put them in a position where you can get them to relax and feel what it's like to have their arm up without cheating and then try to work on them holding it. That eccentric control requires a whole lot of cortical. I mean, they're having to really concentrate. You get a ton of feedback with eccentric work like that. I've had good luck with starting there and then moving into more of a concentric, you know, typical reaching patterns and things. Getting kids engaged with therapy is always fun. You know, trying to get them to really enjoy what they're doing. One of my favorite things and I didn't see this on Etsy or Pinterest. I actually did this. I'm gonna, I don't know if I can take credit for it or not because maybe somebody else has done it, but my wife is a PT, so she'll appreciate this. The, it's the ladder that PTs will use for like doing speed work for sports. Mm -hmm. I'll take one of those and I'll have the caregiver hold one in and I'll hold the other in and I'll put the kid on their back on a scooter and I'll have them reach up and back to pull themselves along that ladder, you know, or, or you can do that with a rope. It's fun. I like doing those things. It's engaging. It's motivating. It's different. It's hard and it gets kids motivated. I'm a big close chain guy. I love close chain stuff for some of the same reasons, just for getting a lot of feedback. If you have a kid that's old enough to kind of get into a tall kneeling stance, and if you have a swing available, which if you're in an adult clinic, you may not, but if you do, 
I'll put them on the swing and I'll like have them hold themselves and tall kneeling and I'll push the swing where if they don't hold, they're going to fall and I'll make them hold themselves while I push it back or for, you know, backwards or forwards where they have to either push to stay in position or to pull to stay in the position. It's fun. It's challenging, you know, and it, and it engages a lot of muscle groups, older kids. I'm still stuck on older kids. Like, <laughs> They're hard. Gosh, they're, they're just, they're really, they're tough to get, like, to care about what they're doing. You know, it's just in general, I just find it hard to say, hey, investment here is going to pay off. Well, speaking to that, do you find that a lot of these kids, I mean, you've seen them since they were potentially a few days old or a few months old. Do you ever get to the point with these kids that they're burnt out on talking about their arm and seeing specialists about their arm and doing therapy on their arm that they just need a break? And sometimes you as a therapist have to take a step back and say, you know what? We need a break and everyone needs a break and, and that's okay. Yeah, that's a really good comment. There's a dynamic with brachial plexus that I think is potentially a little unique in that you have a mother who gave birth to a child that had an injury, being able to speak to that mom and let her know that this was not, now there, there is prenatal care and there's other things, but in general, like mom's not at fault and she needs to know that for, I didn't mention that earlier in, in an exam, but your first time touching base with a family If you can speak to that, I guarantee you that conversation hasn't taken place yet. I can promise you. It didn't happen in the hospital because it's either they do a whole lot in the hospital or they really, really don't. And they probably didn't have that conversation. But there's a dynamic as kids get older and they're getting a ton of therapy. There's an identity issue that I think that moms take on. I am a provider for my child. I am an advocate for my child. And some of their identity can be wrapped in how well they're caring for their kiddo. And that is attached to therapy. So when, you, when I say discharge, they hear, I can't be a good mom. Like it, and I've seen this over and over and over again. So as kids get older, if they've been given a ton of therapy, you really do have to look out for that. I love episodic care. I've really come to enjoy episodic care. I think it's meaningful. Research is supporting it. And it's, there are some built-in times that are less acute. And for the love, take a summer vacation, you know? Take some months off and go, please. Yeah. And you'll restore families in doing that too. Like you, if you can tell a parent like, hey, you're doing a great job. You're killing it as a mom and dad, like, but you can, you can pump the brakes a little bit without hurting your child. Absolutely. And yes, we do. You get a seven-year-old that's been in the system and has had nerve surgery and has had, you know, secondary surgeries. And they're like, they get done, you know, for sure. And that's hard because they're old enough to speak for themselves, but you also have to honor the parent. And so there is a balance there and trying to give them as objective data as you can. But I try to stay away from growth spurts because that's when things change, you know, or like when you have a big transition, if they're four going into kindergarten, that might not be the time to pump the brakes. That might be the time to really get them ready. 
But if you have a two and three year old and their shoulders reduced and their arm is moving pretty good and they're making good progress, they've hit that growth spurt already, that early one, I might say, hey, let's, it's okay. We'll see you every couple months or a few months and keep an eye on he or she and go on a vacation, you know? Yeah. In my institution, we also focus on those episodes of care that we recognize for a lot of these patients, no matter what they're being seen for, whether they're in our developmental PT or OT or they're being seen by hand therapy, we will likely see them over the course of their 18, sometimes 20 years of age, but we're not constantly doing therapy every single week for 18 years. And like you said, if there are big transitions, we see a lot of kids as they're starting school, especially in our hand therapy, like they've got to figure out how are they going to handle everything at school and those ADLs. And then they might be transitioning to sports later on or a musical instrument, like you mentioned earlier, or we see these certain things. And I think that too helps guide our goals as well, that there's usually something that they, there's a specific thing that this child wants to work toward. And that also helps with, they have a little bit of intrinsic motivation too. And so we can utilize those episodes. So I think that's, I like that you mentioned that because we, I agree that we, it's a good, a good guide with some of these patients so that they aren't staying in therapy for 18 years. You also, you can't remove the responsibility from the family. Like it's a good burden for them to feel, I mean, you're going to hold their hand and you're going to lead and and teach and help and all that. But those touch points, you, you also want them to feel the weight of what it means to take these things home. And so again, there's a lot of balance, especially when you're handling caregivers and parents, but yeah, no, that's a, it's a huge thing. And it depends on severity as well. You know, it, it changes based on severity. And the first four years for a brachial plexus patient are really important. First four years are crucial because your, your glenohumeral joint is kind of starting to, you know, be more formed when you get to be four. And keeping it reduced and making sure they're stretching and, and keeping monitoring them and all that, like it's really, it's important. But there are some times, like we talked about, where you can back off a little bit or see them less and taking advantage of that is helpful for you as a clinician to have some fresh eyes sometimes, but also for the parents to say, okay, hey, we can, our life doesn't revolve around therapy. Well, James, this has been a great conversation. I know I've really enjoyed it as someone who treats this population and we just really appreciate you joining us to discuss and I know you have a passion for this as well. I do. You've dedicated I could, yes. quite a bit of your I, uh, work toward it. <laughs> yeah. No, it, this is really honored. Like very honored that you would consider me. And I, I do love this. It's extremely challenging, but it, very rewarding and fun. If we have a, a few moments, I think that I would, I would get slapped on the wrist from some of our colleagues <laughs> if I didn't talk about something at all. Sure. Yeah. Just to touch base because it's it's an interesting thing, especially for the shoulder specifically. Just wanted to talk a little bit about you have the super splint that was championed at British Columbia Children's. And there's the the other main one I think that I've heard of and that people are using is the gunslinger splint or orthosis that 
to protect the shoulder and try to prevent contractures and, and developmental dislocation of the shoulder. At our practice, we started with the super splint and did it for a few years. And it, we kept getting feedback from parents. It's, it's, it's a little cumbersome. It's hard to, to, you know, maybe teach the parents to do it well. Nighttime is always a concern. Can you explain? Because I, I think a lot of people would go, what is the super split? <laughs> what is the super split? Yes. yes. What is Thank it? You. Describe it. So think of it. It is a, it's a long arm volar thumb and hole. It goes from, it's a thumb and hole splint orthosis. I'm, I'm hearing Kimberly stains in my back, in my, in my head saying <laughs> it's an orthosis James. She's going to be billing me a dollar every time I say, right. Uh, I can hear it. It's a thumb and hole orthosis that extends all the way up, you know, to the axilla and it holds their arm, the elbow in extension, the form and supination and the shoulder and external rotation, which is the three like, kind of main issues that we find, you know, for these babies. There's a, you know, there's like a diaper portion that you Velcro to in order to correct the shoulder. And it's, if you've seen a picture of this thing, it's, it's a lot. Making it in clinic takes some time and, and educating the family. It's hard. It's, it's just, it's just tough. I mean, and I also want to speak respectfully because I, I love the product and I love British Columbia and they've done some really good work. We've recently started trialing the more of a gunslinger splint, which is just, it's the elbow at 90, like a long arm posterior elbow splint, orthosis, Kim, <laughs> you know, that's a posterior long arm orthosis that also attaches and it does the same thing except for it doesn't really address the elbow, obviously, because the elbow's at 90. And we normally put the forearm more at neutral, but it does a really good job of keeping the shoulder in external rotation. And we've, we've had good feedback, you know, from our families about that, but both are aimed at trying to prevent some of the, the developmental dislocation of the shoulder, as well as some of the other contractures. Yeah. So these are used on younger babies, yes. younger kids. Yes. Yeah. And British Columbia's, you know, their approach was we need to do this early and often to prevent like they're, they're all about if a child comes in with unopposed shoulder internal rotation, you know, they're applying this very early on and hoping to prevent any dislocation stuff from happening. Research has kind of shown that most dislocations or development of dislocations for this population happen between three and six months of age. So they're really getting after this and getting early, getting ahead of it. The gunslinger or orthosis is much easier to fabricate, in my opinion. I think there's something to it when the families, you're showing them the exercises, you know, you're, how this is how you move your baby. And external rotation in AD duction is number one. Like that's the most important motion. When they see you put an orthosis on that does that, something clicks. They see it. They're like, oh, that's important. I'm going to be moving them in that position. And then we're going to hold them there. And it's, it's kind of visually, they're able to kind of see the goals. So I, I've liked it. And um, we're still, I don't th- know that we've made up our mind completely, but that, that's what we've been applying more readily here, here recently. 
how do you control the shoulder? I know you said you've got the long arm piece. How, how does it attach? Does it attach to the body? Does it attach, like have a waistband or? Yeah, we'll do like a, like a belly band, like a, we'll use a six inch, like the soft strap, the six inch stuff and make a, a belly or even a diaper piece that, that stays on. And then you, you do it. We've tried to go as minimal as we can and still keep it on. You know, it's Texas. That right. summer, <laughs> so, <Yeah>. so <laughs> trying to make it breathable, but we've had really good luck with it. Well, thank you again. Yeah, we really appreciate so much. it. This is a great conversation and maybe just it starts an even longer conversation. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.